congregation last Sunday, we were privileged to consider the beginning of our service, the call to worship, the votum. Remember that Latin word, the votum, our vow. And we called it a declaration of dependence. Psalm 20, 124, verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. Our declaration of dependence. And then the, the, uh, the salutation, God's greeting to us, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and so on. So we consider those three elements at the beginning of our service. Uh, the Sunday before that, we considered the singing that we do in our church. And we looked at what the Bible can teach us about the singing in our church. Well, we move forward as we look at the different elements of our worship service, and we come now to the reading of the law. The reading of the law. You'll see that immediately after the three opening elements of our service, there is the law of God, which we read, we respond to it with a psalm, and uh, a psalm of singing. We sing a psalm in response to it, and then we have an assurance of pardon. So that's what I would like to consider with you this morning, is the reading of the law. Now, this particular part of our worship, our church is almost entirely unique. And I'm not saying that in any kind of superiority or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's just a fact. I don't know of hardly any other church that reads the law every single Sunday morning. So this is, this is a good one. This is an interesting one for us to look at. Why, why do we read the law every single morning? Now, I reached out to some of my brothers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC Church, a church that we are extremely close to. Extremely close. In fact, our hymnal, right? The red hymnal is, is a joint project between our denomination and theirs. And in their order of worship, in, their, in the book of church order, it says that it is desirable that portions from both the Old and the New Testaments be read each Lord's Day. It is also well that the law of God be read frequently. So there you see kind of the same spirit that we have in our own church, that the law of God be read frequently. Now, again, I reached out to my brother in the, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church one of my friends in Grand Rapids who I used to work with, and he, he told me that in many churches they would read uh, the law, but they wouldn't necessarily read Exodus 20 as, as we do, or Deuteronomy 5. They might read some other law portion from either the Old or the New Testaments, but the same spirit. I found it interesting also that some conservative Lutheran churches, the evangelical Lutheran churches, will also uh, read the, uh, the law, or again, something law-like, from the Bible in their worship services. You find in the, in the, in the history of, of churches, even going back to the Roman Catholic Church, that there were always three things that kind of figured large in worship services, and that was the law, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. Now, if, you're, if you heard me say those three things, you'll recognize, right, that's our, what our catechism does, right? Our Heidelberg Catechism explains the Apostles' Creed, it has a long section explaining the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then it closes with an explanation of the Lord's Prayer. So uh, it's very common in the history of the church to see the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, playing a very large role in the worship service. You see in many other Reformed churches that they'll read something like the law in their worship services. But in in Evangelical churches, and by that I mean churches that have a high view of the scriptures, right, where there's preaching, uh, you will almost never hear the law read in such services. 
uh, it is extremely rare. It's certainly not a regular part of their worship. It's very rarely preached on. I don't think that you would hardly ever hear a sermon on one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so this is an interesting thing. When we kind of survey the, the landscape of, of evangelical churches, and we would count ourselves amongst those churches, that our church is, is, is very different uh, in that respect. And again, I, I want to emphasize at this point, I'm not saying that that makes us superior in any way. I'm just noting the fact that when you, when you sit in, our, in, a, in, in the United Reformed denomination or in a Protestant Reformed a church or a Netherlands Reformed church or a Christian Reformed church, for the most part yet, um, you will hear the law read every single Sunday. And not so much in, in other churches. So why? What is the purpose then? That's my first point on the outline there. What is the purpose then in the Reformed Church that the law holds such a prominent place in the worship service? Well, the reason, my friends, is because of the relationship between the law and the gospel. Again, if you're a note-taking kind of person, you'd want to write there, law and gospel. There is a unique relationship, a very special relationship between law and gospel. And let me just be clear here, by law, I mean what the Scripture commands us to do. What the Scripture, how the Scripture commands us to live. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. That's what I mean by law. By gospel, I mean by, I mean by that what Christ has done for us. What Christ has done for us, which of course results in our being forgiven and brought into God's family. So law and gospel. Now the relationship between those two is so key, so very important to the understanding of the Reformed worship service. And that is right, that the law puts us in our place to appreciate the gospel. The law cuts us up. The law exposes us. And it prepares us for the gospel. Now when we come into God's house, we could just start immediately talking about God's wonderful love. We could talk about God's grace. We could talk about God's mercy. We could talk about the, uh, the offer of salvation that he extends far and wide. And I suspect if we did that, we, we understand that, right? But what a much better thing it is, my friends, when we first come under the ministry of the law and it breaks us up. It shows us our failings. It shows us uh, how, how far short we come of the glory of God and keeping his commandments. And now there's room made in our hearts for the gospel. I think uh, back when, I was, when we were talking about the Heidelberg Catechism, I said something like this, children, if, if you were just sitting in your seat right there and I threw you a foam life ring, you know those rings that they have at a pool in case somebody's drowning? But if you were sitting in your seat right here and I tossed you one, I mean, you'd look at me like I was crazy. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, I have no use for this. You, you toss it behind you, right? But if you were drowning, if you were in a pool, you were losing your breath and you were drowning and you were sinking beneath the waves and I tossed you one, now you'd know what to do with it, right? Now you know what to do with it. You wouldn't just toss it carelessly behind your back and say, I have no use for this. You'd cling to it with all your life. Well, now, in the same way, the law in our worship service prepares us to receive the gospel. 
It tears us up. It breaks us down so that we're ready to receive the healing mercy of God. What, what does even, just think about this for a minute. What does the grace of God mean? Think about what grace means. And we all know what it means. What does grace mean if we don't see ourselves to be sinners? Of what need do we have for grace? Thank you very much, but I, I really don't need God's favor and mercy if I'm not in any kind of trouble. Just like I don't need the life ring that you truthed me if I'm not drowning. So then, the law plays a very important role in our worship. It puts us in our place. That's what I put in my notes here because I find that just captures everything. It puts us in our place to receive the gospel. Well then, I think that is a, a, a basic teaching that almost every evangelical church would accept. I think that that's not terribly controversial, that the law prepares us to receive the gospel. So I want to ask then, why is this so rare? Why is it so rare and why, again, is our church rather unique in this respect? If the law does this wonderful thing for us, again, it's a painful thing, but still a a much needed thing. It prepares us to receive the gospel. Why is it so rare? Well, the reason for that is, my friends, is that there is some teaching in the New Testament which some churches have interpreted to mean that the law is no longer uh, binding upon us, and especially the Old Testament law. I, I, can, I can tell you with almost certainty that if you went into any Bible church uh, in, in the Kalamazoo area and asked them what they think about the Old Testament law, the usual answer you would get, and, and by the way, uh, I went to a college, Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, which is where many of these men receive their training, so I'm, I'm familiar, I'm not just shooting off my mouth here. I've actually spoken with these people, right? They're good people, they love the Lord, they love the scriptures, but they have this teaching, right, that the only laws that are valid for Christians in the new covenant, okay, again, in our gospel dispensation, are those commandments that are repeated from the Old Testament. And they apply this to the Ten Commandments as well. So, for instance, then it says, honor your father and your mother. They don't see that particular commandment as binding on anybody unless you find it repeated in the New Testament. Now, of course, it is repeated in the Testament, right? Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay? So they say, well, then that commandment is binding. Not because it's in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are done away with. But because it's repeated in the New Testament, now it is a binding commandment on all New Testament Christians. And so because of this, reading the Ten Commandments in a worship service would be something like me bringing a lamb in here to offer a sacrifice. They would say the Ten Commandments belongs to a different dispensation. It belongs to a different time period in biblical history. And it's all been done away with. And under the New Covenant, we don't have the Ten Commandments anymore. Now again, most of them, in fact, they would say nine of the ten, are repeated for us in the New Testament. So we do keep what's in the Ten Commandments, but not because they're in the Ten Commandments, but because they are repeated for us in the New Testament. Again, this is a very common teaching extremely common. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in many churches, it's no longer even really questioned anymore. That's just how they understand the Bible to be teaching it. Now, my friends, I have to say, uh, with all due respect, that the Bible nowhere teaches that. I think all of us are familiar with Scripture. You will not find any teaching in the Bible where this is laid out for us, that we should only obey those laws of the Old Testament that are repeated for us in the New Testament. 
and again, I, I, I just am stating a fact, right? I, I'm not trying to uh, make myself superior in any way. It's just a fact that that particular teaching, as common as it is in our day, is not found in the New Testament. Okay, but what are the verses then? Let's look at some of these. I put them in the outline there because some of these verses do kind of sound somewhat as though the law has been completely done away with. Consider Romans 6 and verse 14. Right, Romans 6 is that great passage where Paul is trying to teach the Roman Christians and all of us right, that just because we are saved by grace does not mean that we can now live as we please. And uh, Paul makes this statement. Uh, I probably should have put, I wish I had put the whole verse in there. I think in Romans 6, 14, it says something like, sin shall not have dominion over you. And then he gives this reason, for you are not under law, but under grace. Well, that does seem, when you initially read that, that the law has been dispensed with. Again, and and these, uh, again, many of these people understand the word law there to mean all the Old Testament law has been dispensed with and is now replaced with grace. But my friends, when when we look carefully at Romans 6 and verse 14, what it's saying is not that the law has been dispensed with, but a law-based justification. In other words, that legal way of getting right with God. That way of justification that tells us that you need to obey God's commandments. And when you have done that sufficiently, God will then pronounce you just. He will pronounce you right. So, for instance, if I was paraphrasing this, and again, if I give you the whole verse in Romans 6.14, it says, For you are not under the dominion of sin, or for sin shall not have any dominion or, or control over you, for you were not justified by keeping the law, by law-keeping, but by the grace way of justification or the, the way of receiving justification as a free gift because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Again, to use language that we're very familiar with in the Reformed Church, not by the covenant of works, right? You're not under law. You're not under that covenant. You're not answerable to the terms of the covenant of works. But you are answerable to the terms of the covenant of grace, And that's why sin will not have any dominion over you. So not saying that the Old Testament law has all been taken away. In fact, that's not even in in view in this verse. It's talking about how we were justified, how we were made right with God. The second argument I've given you there is really the same as the first one. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, if you understand that verse to be saying that for when Christ came... When Christ Christ was born on earth, that was the end of the Old Testament law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But again, the meaning is the same as what we had in Romans 6, verse 14. For Christ is the end of our law keeping. We may try to justify ourselves by keeping the commandments of God, by dotting every I, by crossing every T, by stamping out every sin that we find in ourselves. But that method of justification will only lead us to failure. But it will also lead us to Christ. We try, we fail, we try, we fail, we try, we fail. Until finally we come to cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ. And in him, we find a full justification for righteousness, right? We come to Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes, and of course who believes in Jesus. So again, not saying the end of the Old Testament law. 
The third argument given here is, is even more clear by, by some of these, uh, again, uh, brothers and sisters who want to tell us that the Old Testament law is completely done away with. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. Now look at that. Letters engraved on stones. What's that referring to? That's clearly referring to the Ten Commandments. So this, might, you might say, is the strongest verse that this view rests on, right? This, this view that right, the only laws that are binding on us are those that are repeated in the New Testament. Because it says here very clearly, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, right? That was on Mount Sinai, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. In other words, these letters engraved on stones came with great glory, but they are now fading away. My friends, if you look carefully, you'll see the same idea, though, that Paul teaches over and over again, that the letters engraved on stones were a ministry of death. Do you see that there in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7? A ministry of death. Why? Because when people sought to be justified by those Ten Commandments, they were slain by it. They were killed by it. They tried so hard to keep the law of God, but they failed. And the law of God proved to be a ministry that led them to death. Even the Ten Commandments were a ministry of death. But now God fades that out, and he brings in this more clear manifestation of the, of the grace of God in Christ, a better way to be justified a ministry of life, which, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, my friends, three arguments again, but again, uh, as we interpret them properly, I believe we see Paul is not saying that the entire Old Testament law is now dispensed with. Well, let's look at a response then from the text that we read this morning. So this is the third point on your outline there, the response from the text that we read this morning. This morning we read Matthew 5, and you'll notice in verse 17, Jesus gives us his clearest statement on the law. He says in verse 17, do not think. Let me just stop there a minute. Do not think. That implies that some people were thinking, right? That implies that some people were thinking, oh, Jesus has now come. Everything is now new. Everything is different. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And I think that it would be a normal thing to think. Well, this is the start of something completely new. That would be a misunderstanding that Jesus is now trying to correct. And so he says, do not think. In other words, some of you might be thinking this, but don't think that way, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, right? That would be what we call the Pentateuch, the Torah, or the prophets, pretty much everything else in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now this is, this is somewhat difficult to understand. What does Jesus mean by fulfill? When we hear abolish, we might think to ourselves, well, the, uh, the opposite of abolish is like to establish, to make strong, to, to make it even firmer. But that's not what it says, though, right? It says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that word fulfill is, is so critical that we understand it correctly. 
This is the way to think about that, dear friends. That is, if you take all the laws in the Old Testament, that all of those laws have to pass through Jesus, you might say. And those laws pass through Jesus, almost like the children, you, you have a sieve, right? And you might take sand and shake the sieve and the sand, right? The small pieces fall through and the big pieces are stuck on the top. In the same way, Jesus is like that sieve. And all of the Old Testament laws, in fact, not even just the laws, but everything in the Old Testament goes into that sieve. And Jesus is that sieve and it passes through Jesus. In other words, all of the Old Testament is not abolished, says Jesus. It's not thrown away or dispensed with. Instead, it comes to you now in my hands. I take the law and I interpret it for you. I fulfill it for you. I show you how you are to understand it. That means different laws have a different interpretation and understanding placed on them by Jesus. Let's look at some of these specifically then. Consider with me, well, let's just take uh, on, your, on your outline there, I have the sin offering, right? In Leviticus chapter 4, we have all the laws pertaining to the sin offering. If you committed a certain kind of sin, here's the sacrifice you have to bring. So this is the law that's pertaining to the sin offering. Here it is. Now, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill. And we said that that means that that laws, all those laws pertaining to the sin offering, have to pass through Jesus. Jesus is now going to take that law, and it's going to come out on the other side, and he's going to give it to us in its proper meaning. What does that mean for the sin offering? Well, for the sin offering, that means that the shadow or the picture now comes to us in its reality. That's what fulfill means for these kinds of laws. That this sin offering is fulfilled. In other words, the shadow or the picture gives way to the reality. That's what it means. And again, in, in our, in a, I think you'll, you're, you've probably heard these terms. The ceremonial laws have this fulfillment by Jesus in that what they pictured or what they, what they, uh, what they were types of are now fulfilled by coming to us in the New Testament in the reality. I believe it was last week, you'll remember that uh, Paul said, Christ is our Passover lamb. That's a perfect illustration of what I'm saying. All the laws pertaining to the Passover, was the Passover done away with? On the contrary, we now have it in Christ. We have a Passover. We have a Passover lamb, and it's Jesus. That law was not dispensed with. It was fulfilled. It came to us. We now have Christ. What about many of the other laws in the Old Testament, some of which seem rather, rather strange to us? I just picked a Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22, where you'll read things like, uh, um, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. And you know the story, right? You've read those laws. Many, many, many laws that were given specifically to Israel as a nation. Now, how do those laws pass through Jesus Christ? How does Jesus give us those laws? How are they fulfilled? Well, and again, this might sound a little contradictory now, but stay with me here. Jesus does bring those laws to an end. Those laws are brought to an end along with the covenant that God made with Israelite as a nation 
And as the covenant that God made with Israel came to an end, so did the laws that pertain to Israel as a nation come to an end. Now, I know that may sound contradictory. Stay with me here. Because Jesus says he didn't come to abolish. But again, when those laws, or we may call them the civil laws, when they are interpreted and fulfilled by Jesus, they are brought to an end because the person of Jesus Christ brought an end to the Mosaic or to the covenant that God made with the Israelite nation. Now, some people may object to that. And I understand that because the text so clearly says that he didn't come to abolish. But it does sound like he abolished some laws. Well, my friends, I think it wouldn't be so correct to say that he abolished them so much as that he, he, he put an end to them in his own work and ministry. Because now the Old Testament, or the, the covenant that God made with Israel, is, is no longer necessary. It came to its end in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself teaches us to think that way. For instance, in Matthew 15, Jesus makes this comment about all the clean and unclean laws. You remember those laws, right? In the Old Testament, many, many laws about what you can eat. This food is clean. This food is unclean. The Israelites had to be very punctilious about their obedience to those laws. Never to eat pork, right? That was unclean. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, another the food you eat, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. A clear reference that it's not what you eat that defiles you, clean or unclean foods. But the words that you speak, when you sin with your tongue, that's what defiles you. My friends, that is a clear statement of Jesus putting an end to those Old Testament civil laws that belong to to Israel as a nation. Elsewhere, in in the same book of Matthew, Jesus puts an end to the temple tax. Remember the the, uh, the temple leadership comes to Peter and says, how come you guys don't pay your temple tax? And, uh, and G- Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, we haven't paid our temple tax. And Jesus says, well, go fishing. And remember, they catch the fish and it's got a coin in it. But Jesus also says at that point that we are free from that law. You can read that in Matthew 17. Jesus says the children don't need to pay the tax. And yet the book of Exodus very clearly says that every Israelite family owes so much money to the temple every so often. So again, when we look at the practice of Jesus, we see that those laws, when they pass through Jesus Christ, come to us and are brought to an end. The civil laws, if we can call them, they belonged to the covenant that God made with Israel as a nation, and they are brought to an end. But to bring us to the point uh, this morning, what about the Ten Commandments? They were clearly part of the covenant that God made with Israel as a nation. No question about that. That was on Mount Sinai when God made the covenant and he gave Israel his Ten Commandments. What about them? Are they ended? Again, initially we would say, well, it certainly seems so. It certainly seems that those Ten Commandments would come to an end. And yet, my friends, again, when we read the rest of Scripture, we come to this conclusion that no, there seems to be something unique about that body of law. The Ten Commandments seem to be eternally binding upon the people of God. How do we... What passages of Scripture would lead us to believe that? 
Well, I'm sorry, before I, before I, I go on, quickly, just to know, I, I quoted the Belgic Confession there. And I want to look at that with you a minute. Notice the Belgic Confession, Article 25. It says, We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Now, some of that language there is, is again, I would say a bit unfortunate, especially when it says abolished, uh, because, again, the text so clearly says that Jesus did not come to abolish. And yet the next sentence I put in italics, because this gives us what the confession means. It says, yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. That's the key sentence there, my friends, and that's really stating it so beautifully. That yes, those Old Testament foreshadowings and symbols and ceremonies, they're not ended. But in Jesus Christ, they receive their perfect fulfillment. And so they continue. They remain for us, as our, as our confession says. In that sense, they haven't been ended. Now, the other laws that we talked about have been ended. But now, specifically about the Ten Commandments then. The Ten Commandments. The promise of the new covenant, my friends, comes to us in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. And I want to read Jeremiah 31 and verse 30. Well, I'll read Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So there it is. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now I ask you, my friends, does this text teach us that in the new covenant, God's law will be dispensed with? That it will be taken away? Or does it teach us that the law of God will be internalized? It'll be written on our hearts. Now, this is a very clear statement from Scripture of how we're to understand the law in the new covenant, in the covenant in which we live under. That the law has not been abolished, it's not been dispensed with, it's been internalized, written on our heart. A very important text to consider as we think about these things. Now when I go to Matthew chapter 7, we find Jesus, and remember Jesus is the one who gave us the text this morning that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And now in Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus is teaching here on the golden rule. Matthew 7 verse 12, Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. That's the golden rule, right? Now, why should you do that? Why should we observe the golden rule? For this is the law and the prophets, says Jesus. For this is the law and the prophets. That indicates to me that laws like the temple tax, laws like the clean and unclean foods, came to an end when they came to Jesus Christ. They were in the Old Testament, but when they passed through that sieve, as it were, the, the interpretation of Jesus, they came to an end. But there's some portion of God's law that continues. Otherwise, how are we to understand what Jesus says here? For instance, could not one of the disciples have said, Jesus, 
um, the law and the prophets is over with now. When you came, you brought in the kingdom. And in your kingdom, the Old Testament laws don't apply anymore, so why are you telling us to keep the golden rule? Because that's what's stated in the law and the prophets. You see the, the reasoning here. But no, Jesus assumes here that this part of the law and the prophets continues. And of course, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is basically our summary of the second table of the commandments, right? Honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. Again, I, I hope, my friends, that it's, it's becoming clear to you that there's a great deal of legislation in the Old Testament that in the coming of Christ was done away with. And yet there's a, a kernel of it that continues. Let's continue to look at what the Apostle Paul does because the Apostle Paul is the one that's usually appealed to as teaching that the entire Old Testament law was done away with. How does Paul treat the law? In Romans 13 and verse 8, he writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, shouldn't we at this point say, Paul, um, the law? We don't deal with the law anymore. That was the Old Testament dispensation. Clearly, Paul understands that to love people, you have to observe the Ten Commandments. Now, in case you're wondering about the Ten Commandments here, if you keep reading there, Paul says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 9, he says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, in other words, all the rest, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, my friends, I ask you again not to accept this because I'm saying it or because we're such a great church, right? I'm asking you, what does the Scripture teach about the validity or the abiding character of the Ten Commandments for New Covenant Christians? Is your understanding Paul's understanding? Because Paul says you need to love everybody. We need, Paul always believes, right? Paul holds love as the very highest virtue. And he says the way you love people not some kind of amorphous, vague, love wins, right? Okay. No, Paul says love has very real content. It means you don't commit adultery. It means you don't murder. It means you don't steal. Love has a real content to it. And that content ha happens to be the Ten Commandments. Clearly, Paul understands the Ten Commandments to be binding and to be obligatory upon Christians under the New Covenant. In Ephesians chapter 6, my last one, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul commands children to obey their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then does Paul at this point say, uh, because I'm now repeating this, this commandment is now binding on you? No, he doesn't do that at all. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now I ask you to decide, my friends, in your own mind, in your own Bible, does Paul understand the Ten Commandments to be binding law for New Testament Christians? 
Again, I ask you to, to think about this with your own mind, looking at your own Bible. What does Paul think of the law? And the following question, by application then, is, is that your understanding of the law, of the Ten Commandments? Paul clearly assumes that the Ten Commandments are binding because he appeals without any other comment. He just says, children, obey your parents. Why? Because of the Fifth Commandment. Done. That's it. He doesn't give any other qualification or say because it's now I'm repeating it or because, after all, we know that Jesus taught us to do this even though the Old Testament came to an end. No, 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 no. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, come to us in the, in the words of Jesus and in the words of the Apostle Paul as abiding uh, commandments still binding upon us as New Testament Christians. Well, my friends, I'm going to have to quickly move through these points of application. But I believe that it's appropriate that in the first place we rejoice in God's law. And again, I think that in, the, in churches today, this is language that you almost never hear, that God's law is a wonderful gift to us. Now, let me just ask you this question this morning. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you come to Christ for salvation? Have you found in Christ a full and free forgiveness from all your sins? And I trust this morning that everyone here will say yes. Why did you come to Christ why did you feel the burden of your sin? Why did that pain drive you out of yourself to take refuge in the bleeding wounds of Jesus Christ? The law brought you there, my friends. Okay, you might not have thought about that, right? But when you think about it now, it's the law that drives us out of our comfort, drives us out of our feeling of safety, and shows us that we are in a dreadful position, that we are exposed to the wrath of God. And because of that pain that we feel, we fly to the cross of Christ for salvation. So I ask you again, is the law a gift? Is it not something that we should rejoice in? Is it a bitter pill? Well, I'll ask you, you know, when you go to the doctor and he, he says, you know, you have cancer. That's not a nice thing to hear, but that also can save your life. Right? When you have procedures done at the, at the hospital, Few of them are pleasant. And yet we all understand them to be life-giving. The second place, my friends, again, if I ask you, are, you, are your sins forgiven? Are you, are, you, are you redeemed by Christ? And do you have hope of heaven? Let us, let us just suppose for a moment, my friends, that you just heard the gospel for the very first time in your life. And let us suppose that with great joy and rejoicing, you took hold of Christ right now, just this instant, you believed in Christ. You put your trust in him. You said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And with joy and gladness, you step up in this church. You sing the songs of praise. And you walk out of that door. And you ask yourself, now what? Now what do I do? My sins have been forgiven. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given himself for me. But now what do I, how do I how do I live my life in such a way that now I'll show gratitude to him for what he's done for me? Well, my friends, God comes to you with his law. He says, love God and love your neighbor. And here's what, here's how you can do it. Now I ask you again, is that not a gift? 
Now, I have to say, my friends, that if you've never had that feeling in your life of what can I, how can I live for God's glory, then you're not a Christian. Because every true Christian has but one thought on his mind. How can I live to God's glory? How can I walk with God day by day in a way that honors him for what he's done for me? And the law of God lays out that roadmap for you. Do this and don't do this. Now, that's a gift. That's a wonderful gift, my friends, that we should rejoice in. Praise God for his law, that he shows us how to live to his glory. Our attitude in the second place, let me just say that in Psalm 119, I found the word delight 11 times. Isn't that interesting? Delight. And you know that the whole 119th Psalm, right, is about God's law, God's word, God's testimonies, right, God's statutes. I hasten to application three, my friends, because I can do this very quickly. So what should we do with it? What should we do with the law of God? May I suggest that we continue reading it every Sunday morning and that we praise God for the gift of his law every Sabbath that we gather together again and rejoice in this gift to us. May God grant it. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for your law. It is a bitter pill to swallow many times. It's like the doctor's knife that cuts us open and exposes the cancer of sin within us. But for all that, Lord, we rejoice in that pain because we know that it's that pain that led us to come to the Savior, that brought us to the bleeding Savior to find forgiveness in his wounds. Lord, if there is one gathered with us here this morning who has not come under that convicting ministry of the law, that ministry of death, Lord, I pray that this very hour they would realize their lost condition, their guilt before you, and that they would take refuge in Jesus Christ, and that they would say uh, themselves, that they would say it with us, and that they would say it with all the people of God, Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then and keep us this day. We pray for a blessed service also this evening that you would gather with us, Lord, and give us all that we need to be blessed by your word also this evening. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn then in the blue hymnal again to number 453. Number 453. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. So we'll sing, uh, let's sing the first three verses, the first three verses of 453 in the Blue Hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.